Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode number 246, You and Me and Ruth, part two. So uh, before we get to part two, uh, I'll be on tour this summer in two weeks. I'll be in Kentucky, be in Louisville. I haven't been to Louisville in like a decade. Uh, Chattanooga and Knoxville, Tennessee. It's the Introduction to Joy tour. And this tour, so much fun. And then in uh, July, I'll be in Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco. And then uh, August, I'm actually speaking at a festival in Norway, and uh, the Olav Fest in Trondheim. And then I'm doing an event in Denmark called An Evening with Rob Bell. And then after that, the Introduction to Joy tour continues with Bristol, London, Manchester. And then I'm doing three nights at New Theater um, in Edinburgh as part of the Fringe Festival. So... Um, covering a fair bit of ground, and would love to see you at any of those. All the info for that, uh, and tickets, details, etc., is at robbell.com. And then tickets are also up for the fall two days, which are all about the art of communicating. And uh, so if you're working on ideas that need shape and form, maybe you're stuck, maybe uh, you're brand new to this, maybe you've been doing this for a while, you found yourself in a bit of a rut, I'm doing these workshops, which are very uh, practical, mixed with conceptual, um, right? Does that make sense? <laughs> and actually, the, these fall two days where you come, I'm taking over the Improv Comedy Club here in Los Angeles for two days. Um, but this is the first time I've done a two-day where you can email ahead um, the questions, specific questions about what you're working on, and then I'm shaping the two days um, around new content I have, and then specifically addressing the things that people who are coming are asking about. So, oh my word, good times coming our way. Um, so there's a few things going on, but now, here we go. You and Me and Ruth, part two, because there's this book called Ruth. It's uh, Joshua Judges, it's like the eighth book in the Bible. It's only four chapters, it's told from the female perspective. Um, women run the story. Women are the catalysts. Women are the engine of the story. They move the plot along. Uh, it's very interesting. And there's all these interesting questions about why is this book in the Bible? And literally, if you look across like the scholarly literature, um, the theories and explanations, as soon as you find one explanation, you'll find 20 other people going, nah, that's not really valid. That's not a good enough explanation. So it even has this question mark around why did people for literally thousands of years find this story something to repeat, to retell, to keep in the middle of sacred text? Now it's a love story. And there's all these interesting things going on just below the surface. So if you read it, you're not really fuzzy on why people found it fascinating. Um, and we're going to get into some of that, some of the explanations. And then um, I want to show you what I think is going on here and why, why it's so huge uh, for us right here and right now. In part one, I talked about uh, the particulars and how when you read an ancient story, 
you're going far enough into the story that you can find yourself. And that this is, it's like muscles you build up, the ability to find yourself in another person. If you look far enough into them, you'll find yourself. And that this is uh, almost like a skill that has in many ways been lost in the modern world, especially with the internet, which severs people from the particulars. Like you think about Twitter where it's just this sentence and then this person responds with this sentence. It's communication severed from flesh and blood, from location, from geography, from story. It's just an isolated sentence uh, clobbering another isolated sentence, which then throws some fists, and then this person, it's just, uh, it's like decontextualized words. No wonder we're more polarized than ever. And so one of the ways back in is growing in your ability to whoever you're interacting with, asking, where am I here? Because at some level, we've all lost. We've all been, we've all been lost. We've all been betrayed. We've all lost somebody we love. We all struggle. We're all trying to pay the bills and do it with some integrity and soul, right? Are you with me on this? At some level, there's a human experience that we're all having. And, and one of the beautiful things that happens when you join in a tradition or a lineage and you gather around an ancient sacred text is what you're doing is you're encircling that text. As people have encircled it for thousands of years, you're joining in a human community as a way of like, it's almost like training yourself to look beyond yourself, to see your own history and story in the history and stories of others. Because you find then that you're not alone, but you also find this profound sense that we're in this together. Now you can actually maybe make some progress together. So that's what we looked at. Chapter one of Ruth, uh, there's this family, and there's a famine in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread. So there's no bread in the house of bread. Bethlehem is in Israel. And so these people, this family, uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, they had to a foreign land, to the neighbor land, Moab. And Moab was like the evil empire next door. They were the arch enemy. Uh, but because of forces beyond these people control, namely famine, they are on the move and they have to go wherever there's bread. And that happens to be uh, the arch enemy next door. They settle there in Moab. The sons marry. And then... The sons die and the husband dies, and we're left with Naomi and her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Eventually, Naomi hears that there is now food back in Bethlehem. The famine's over. And so she heads back, and the daughter, the her two former, I guess former daughter-in-laws follow her, Ruth and Orpah. But then there's this moment where Naomi is like, Why are you coming with me? Like, you would be foreigners there. You would have no rights. You would be extremely vulnerable. Why would you come with me? Go back to your families in Moab and, and find some new husbands and get on with your lives. And there's this really uh, interesting part where she says, why would you come with me? Do you th- even if I got pregnant tomorrow, you'd have to wait around for my sons to grow up. Um, it's funny, by the way, right there. Subversive, but very funny. Um, and so Orpah hears all this, the one 
daughter Lon, she's like, yeah, that's a good point, and turns and heads home. But Ruth, for reasons unknown, and this we explored a bit in part one, for reasons unknown, Ruth says, no, where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. For some reason, this woman Ruth is bound to her former mother-in-law and says, no, I'm going with you, which uh, is of great risk for her. In the ancient Near East at this time, a widow with no larger clan tribe that she is associated with for protection is extraordinarily vulnerable, um, which is why, by the way, you see prostitution playing a particular role in the ancient world, is prostitution is essentially how a woman um, who's all alone, in many ways, that was her last resort to literally put some food on the table for herself. So it was far less of some sort of moral choice and more like uh, a last-ditch attempt to stay alive might be a, a way to see that. So uh, it's all sorts of like historical social factors sort of swirling around in the story. And uh, you have this really interesting thing the storyteller does, is the storyteller doesn't tell us why Ruth insists on putting herself in this precarious position by following her former mother-in-law back to the, her former mother-in-law's home. Like she says in chapter one, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi, with the loss of her husband and her sons, is in such agony, such anguish, that she literally renames herself after our, her pain. No, I'm no longer Naomi, which essentially means pleasure and delight in Hebrew. She essentially says, I am no longer pleasure and delight. I am bitter because God has taken from me and afflicted me like this. So she places the blame firmly on her God, and that's where chapter 1 ends. So, here we have Ruth from Moab, who's new in town. She's a widow. She's a foreigner. She's from a different nation that has a different God. And in some ways, uh, when you think about the ancient Near East, these different regions had different gods. So when you moved in among these different places, these different spaces had different deities that were seen as sort of governing, ruling over these. Now, um, the radical idea in this Jewish story, uh, one of the many radical ideas, is of a divine being who isn't confined to geography, who's in all spaces. So you can see the, this tension uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures uh, of this new idea of expanded, hu essentially expanded human consciousness, of not just a regional god, who has like a statue carved of that God, but of a, of a God who refuses any sort of 
physical representation. So sort of infinite formless without edges or boundaries divine being who isn't confined to statues and isn't confined to geography. This, this divine being can't even fit in a temple, which at the time was a radical idea, still a radical idea. Um, and so you have Ruth showing up in what to her, her is a foreign place. Now Naomi, chapter 2, had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. How's that for a name, by the way? Isn't that a great name? Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, what we know from Torah, first five books, is that built in to the like legal codes was a whole series of regulations from Leviticus 19 and from Deuteronomy 24 that essentially said, when you set up your society, build into your laws a provision that when you're harvesting your field, leave a corner of your field for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant or the refugee among you. And so built into the political governance structure of like, like, the, like Bethlehem here, built into their entire way of life was a provision so that anybody who's hungry or vulnerable or unprotected who doesn't have a larger family that they're a part of, anybody who could be exploited or taken advantage of, protect them. So when you harvest your crop, leave a corner of the field so that those people can come and pick up the grain, and they can have plenty to eat. By the way, let's just pause for a second. So, uh, we'll pause for a second in a second. So, when Ruth says, um, I'm going to go into the field and try to pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor, she's essentially saying, I'm going to go see if there's somebody who's generous, decides to be generous with me. But what she doesn't no, apparently, is that these people have encoded in their legal system, it's not about uh, if you happen to find favor, it's a law that you are to leave a corner of your field. So thousands of years ago, this particular, uh, what do you say, society, these people, had a whole series of very particular rules about keeping the vulnerable protected and the hungry fed. And they also had uh, a whole series of Jubilee laws, which were every seven years set everybody free from all the debts they owe you. So every seven years, everybody gets to go back to their family lands and everybody gets a fresh start. So their society had a whole series of rules built around economic rebirth, essentially, and freedom so that nobody would ever get too far in debt, so that nobody would ever be hungry, so that anybody who wanders into your midst from another country would have a way to 
make their way in this new world and find work and find dignity and find food, find a roof over their head? (laughs) Yeah, see, these are the questions. Isn't it interesting how just right here in chapter 2, you see that the questions and policies that people were enacting and working to enact raised all sorts of questions about the world that we live in now, don't they? How are we organized? Are we organized in such a way that nobody can get too far in debt? Is our economic system tilted in favor of the most vulnerable and at risk? Do we have a way of making sure that anybody who crosses over into our borders is adequately cared for? (laughs) Yeah, how does the world get ordered? Uh, What we know, obviously, is the system that we are living in orders the world in favor of those on top. We know from the year 1970 to the year 2016, the pay of the 1% increased by 216%. We know that the three richest people in the world have the same wealth as the 48 poorest countries combined. We know that in the U.S., the richest 1% have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90%. Uh, What we know is that the system that we are currently participants in is rigged in favor of the wealthy. What we know is that over the past 50 years especially, more and more and more wealth has gathered in the hands of fewer and fewer and fewer people, while average workers' incomes since 1971 have not proportionally increased, while the upper 1% incomes have increased double and triple. So we know that this system that we are in is not rigged on behalf of the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the refugee among you. So, uh, yeah, see, when you read these ancient texts, they effortlessly raise all sorts of interesting questions, not to sort of idealize some other time and space, but simply to say, Man, this raises such profound questions about the world we live in. Now, back to the story. So Naomi says to Ruth, go ahead, my daughter. So Naomi went out, so Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So Boaz is the one who owns the field that Ruth happens to pick, and Boaz is related to Elimelech, which is Naomi's husband who has died earlier. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, because apparently they're out in the field and he'd been in the village. Uh, The Lord be with you, Boaz says to the harvesters. Lord bless you, they all answered. Boaz asked the overseer, overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Now, belong to simply means which clan, which family, uh, because he sees Ruth gleaning in his field and wants to know which family she's a part of. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Isn't it fascinating that Ruth's primary identity according to the storyteller, with the overseer of the field, is uh, she's the foreigner. That's who she is. She's the one from Moabite. 
Uh, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. So apparently Boaz is significantly older than Ruth. Don't go and glean another field and don't go away from here. Stay here and work in this field. And then Ruth says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you even notice me, a foreigner? And then Boaz replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, there's so much. Uh, It's like the storyteller has loaded Boaz's lines. It's like you can feel him. There's like a little wink, a little nod. It's like a Tarantino film where this gesture is about that scene and that comment refers back to that moment. Because when he says... Uh, did I just compare the book of Ruth to a Tarantino film? Nice. <laughs> he says, uh, I've been told all about you, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came and lived to came and came to live with the people you did not know before. Now, deep in the story of Boaz's people, you have Abraham who leaves his father's household and heads into the unknown. This is uh, Moses who heads in to the unknown. You have these Hebrew slaves who leave Egypt and in some ways head into the unknown. Uh, In this people, in the bloodstream of these people, in their history, is this tradition of people leaving the known, safe, and familiar for the unknown and new. Which we also know from every hero's journey ever in every kind of literature across the ages and traditions and time periods. But it's as if when Boaz says, I've heard about you, you left the known and headed into the unknown. It's almost like he says, uh, we, know, we know this story. Yeah. Yeah, it's like he affirms something, because that's our question in, in chapter one. Our question in chapter one is, what is it about Ruth that, that causes her to com- go completely against conventional wisdom? In fact, her own sister, flesh and blood, is like, uh, no, I'm staying here, thanks. I'm going back to mom and dad. And apparently there on the road, Ruth and Orpah part ways. Orpah takes the safe and known path. Says, why would I go to a foreign land with foreign customs, foreign religion, foreign God, foreign... I mean, why would I go be a widowed foreigner, immigrant, refugee, poor, when I could go back to mom and dad's place and find another man from the village and start another life? And yet something within Ruth says no. I'm uh, headed the other way. And something within Boaz sees in her something of this. 
this, uh, because it takes, takes tremendous resilience, takes resolve. It also takes, ah, uh, you could probably come up with better language than me for this. What would you call it? Like, it's some trust, uh, what'd you call it? Some intuitive trust that there's something more for you. Is that what it is? Yeah, in your own life, those moments when you knew, yeah, I gotta leave, I gotta pack up, I gotta go, this isn't it. And you had people around you going, what are you doing? You have it, you have it great, you have it made. People would kill for this position. What are, what are you doing? Everybody wants this job. Why, why, look at your house, look at your, whatever. Whatever people pointed out to say, and there's always the doubt, What's wrong with me? Why can't I be content? The good often gets in the way of the journey of the soul. It's like, wait, look at this job. It's, people would kill for this job. Look at the money you're making. Look at the beautiful setting you have. Look at this town. It's got everything you need. Why in the world would you leave? Why would you... Look at our family. We're all here. Look at all... Why... Would you feel some need? And, and, and often, the, the really sort of disturbing thing is it's hard to put in language why you know you need to keep going, why you need to journey, why you need to leave, why you need to depart. Uh, and what's interesting in this particular tradition and these ancient texts is the story storytellers are very, it's after a while you see the pattern. They intentionally leave out the explanations. Like you think about the Abraham story. So Abraham was told to leave, so he does. He leaves his father's household. And when it says household, that's economic, that's protection, that's clan, that's uh, provision. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole, he, he leaves the whole known thing. Um, yeah, there's something in these texts that is universal. We don't know why, we just know something within us says, keep going, keep going, keep going, it's time. I, I, don't, even, don't even try to defend, don't apologize for it, don't explain, just pack up and go. Because you, your future, your, the true you is in this journey. And when Boaz meets Ruth, here's this foreigner widow. He's heard of her because of this. I've heard about you. You were not only extremely kind to your mother-in-law, but you left. You left. It's like he it's almost like he affirms something within her leap. You took a flying leap and props, right? That's the, that's the actual, the actual Hebrew word here is props, mad respect. <laughs> so, uh, and he says, uh, because of this, may you be taken care of essentially. And then, um, he keeps, he, he orders, uh, the people who run his fields, um, to let her gather among the sheaves, don't reprimand her for anything, and even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So essentially he says, make it even easier for her. Um, and so she gleans, then she goes home to uh, Naomi, and she has 
so much food she brings home, and Naomi says, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi's like, how did you get so much? Somebody must have really uh, cared for you. And then she told uh, tells Naomi, um, the, the man who owns the field is Boaz. And then Naomi says, the Lord bless him. By the way, and this is interesting, Naomi is the one who said, I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. Because Yahweh, Lord, the one who rescues, the divine who rescues people from slavery, has been uh, cruel to me and has afflicted me and caused me great anguish. But now when Ruth happens to, to pick randomly the field of a man related to Naomi's dead husband, Naomi says, ah, Yahweh, bless him. So Naomi is both afflicted and angry and has issues with her God and has great affection for the power of blessing and provision that her God provides. Once again, ancient Near East years ago, but... What's also interesting is the storyteller presents Naomi, who has a wide variety of perspectives on the divine. She's angry and furious, and she's also grateful. She is hurt and feels betrayed, and she also has this tremendous sense of warmth and affection for the divine benevolence, and it all just sits side by side. Yeah, the stretchiness of the human heart to handle so many impulses and opinions and perspectives at the same time, right? Is that not? Oh, and then uh, the divine has not stopped showing the divine kindness to the living and the dead. Now, there's a whole world of history behind this word kindness uh, here. So Naomi essentially says to Ruth, oh my word, you just wandered in to a random field, and it turned out to be one of my dead husband's kinsmen, one of his relatives. That is, a, what, that is an amazing coincidence. And then she says, the divine has shown kindness. Now, the word kindness here in, in the original Hebrew language doesn't have... Kindness is how it gets translated here, but that's a little uh, bland, might be the word, a little neutered, because the word in Hebrew is the word chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Now, uh, by the way, if you're going to like put up a mantra or you know put something in ink on your skin, chesed, uh, that's a word. Um, chesed is like, it's like a loving... Some translate it loving kindness. Uh, it's like a love filled with grace. It has this back and forth dimension to it. It's a love that's given and received, um, almost like there's a, a, a circle of energy coming and going between the two. It's, this, uh, it's almost like a dialogue of love where there's something flowing back and forth. It's a, u- it's a word often used to describe the divine love, which is, is like a dialectic. It's like a back and forth. See, for many, uh, especially in the modern world, if, if they have any sort of 
you'll see this very, it's often very popularized. If there's an idea of God, it's of a God who like commands and a God, maybe who sends love and a God who gives orders. Um, but, but in the consciousness of this storytelling and, and in the Hebrew consciousness, the, it's a back and forth. It's like a, it's like a dialogue. It's like, that's why there's questioning and doubt and anger. Uh, this was, this was essentially a new idea in human history. The idea of humans and the divine in like an actual relationship, like not robots, but like lovers who have it out, who, uh, who are angry with each other, who move back and forth between affection and questions and there's distance and then there's intimacy. There's all the, the sort of sweat and stumbling and figuring it out of an actual relationship. So when Naomi says this, she is, she's drawing on this ancient tradition of chesed. And the word actually occurs uh, three times here in Ruth. It occurs once in chapter one, it occurs here, and then uh, Boaz uses the word again later when he's talking uh, to Ruth. Well, I'm jumping ahead of the love story here, but uh, and by the way, some, when they say, what is the point of this book? Um, why is it even in the Bible? Some say because it gives you a like, living, breathing picture of what chesed looks like when people share the divine love with each other, when the love that flows through all of creation begins to flow through actual flesh and blood people. So some people say the whole point of this book is chesed. Uh, you'll find chesed in the Psalms. You'll find it throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It's this beautiful, beautiful word. Yeah, by the way, if you're, uh, if somebody's wronged you and you're having trouble forgiving them, especially like if you're in like a, a relationship of close proximity, maybe even a long-term partner and husband, wife, et cetera, and you're having something between you, um, I'm telling you, use this word, chesed. Uh, there is a love as wide as the universe, and it's like almost like a prayer that it would flow through you, uh, and that it would flow through them, and that you would move into this space where there's this back and forth. Instead of the cold shoulder, instead of holding it you know, in your f clenched fists and being like, why would I show them any love when they treat me like that? Chesed just opens its hands and says, here what I have, I give you. Uh, and that's often what frees the other person. So uh, where were we in this? Man, seriously, it's a love story, right? It's a love story here. We love love, we love, love stories. So uh, chapter two, Ruth starts doing her work in Boaz's field. Then chapter three, things get dicey in the best sort of way. Things get flat out sexy here because one day Naomi her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, I, I need to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Um, once again, uh, in the ancient Near East thousands of years ago, uh, a widow, foreign, poor foreign widow, would be extremely vulnerable to all sorts of exploitation. So Naomi has this, Ruth, we got to get you hooked up. Um, so yes, there's like love and like a marriage relationship and a husband, but also at a much more primal sort of basic level, being aligned with a family 
generally through marriage, is what would keep people alive. So this is much more life and death than this is uh, like a falling in love thing. Nevertheless, this is a love story. Um, so Naomi says, you know, Boaz, uh, whose field you've been in, he's actually a relative. Um, and she says, now, tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So this is a thing that would happen during the harvest time, is often the person who owned the field would spend the night on the floor where they threshed, where they threw the grain up so that the chaff could blow away and the seeds would fall to the ground and then it would be easier to harvest for making food, etc. So Naomi says, um, Boaz is going to be in the field essentially tonight. He'll be spending the night there because that's what the owner of the field would do this time of year. Um, Ruth, wash and perfume yourself, perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. She goes, she, in the middle of the night, assuming, she approaches quietly, she uncovers his feet and lays down. And then uh, he sees there's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. Uh, I'm Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a family guardian. Okay, (laughs) now, I know if you're reading this with any sense of, wait a second, what is going on here? Because you can just smell the euphemisms, correct? uncovering the blanket and laying at his feet. Now, you can find a wide range of opinions about what exactly is going on under the blanket on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. You can have people saying anything related to feet is a euphemism for genitals, and so uncovering his feet is essentially you can you can let your, uh, you know what I mean, imagination run wild here. Does she pleasure him? Does she take off his lower, like, what is happening under the blanket? Now, you can find people saying, oh, yeah, of course, she pleasures him, they have sex, whatever it is. Uh, You can find other people saying, no way. I tend to think that uh, it's an even more dangerous thing she does here than just surprising him with pleasure. She's essentially at great risk taking his blanket and putting it over him is essentially saying, uh, in some ways it's saying, marry me. It's saying, let's be together under the blanket, not just right now, but from here on out. This is, of course, very risky, sexy, dangerous activity for a foreign, poor widow to be doing. She waits till the Till we can assume some form of wealthy, solid, like land-owning uh, Boaz, who seems to be some sort of village elder. But the way we pick it up from the story, the way everybody greets him when he shows up, the way everybody seems to report to him at some level, she waits till he's asleep and then goes in and essentially lays down at his feet, which was a gesture of saying, let's be together. Um, Now, she has no rights 
in this culture, in this place, in this particular Bethlehem, house of bread, Bethlehem space, this woman has no rights. He can, uh, if he's offended, if she has misunderstood or misplayed her hand, if Naomi has been too bold or presumptuous, there is ferocious, massive risk here for Ruth. Uh, but whatever gesture this is, whatever, whatever we, whatever the text means by feet, whatever this means, the way that Boaz responds is he says, "The Lord bless you, uh, my daughter." He replied, which is probably more a term of affection than it is. You remind me of like my right. It's, uh, this kindness, and the word he uses, as you know, chesed, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. I will do all that you ask. Essentially, he says, okay, uh, I'm going to marry you, and we're going to sort this out, and we're going to be together. And so then he uh, says, now there's a relative who's closer to Naomi and you than me. So uh, in the ancient world, when a man dies, his brother or his next closest kinsman would then take on his wife in order to make sure that the family line continued and the woman was protected from any sort of vulnerability or exploitation. Once again, ancient Near East, long time ago, very different world. So Boaz essentially says, hey, there's somebody slightly closer. I need to go sort this out legally with that guy. Uh, and then we'll be together. And uh, then chapter four, uh, they get married. They do this really interesting ceremony involving a sandal in a public place. <laughs> and uh, then Boaz gives this speech. And then everybody says, we are witnesses, and they get married, and then Ruth, end of chapter four, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a family guardian. So essentially, the women in the village are like, "Look, Naomi, everything's fine. You have your your line continues," um, and uh, Naomi, who essentially comes back home empty, um, her arms they put the child in her arms. Naomi has a son, they say, uh, and then there's this little tiny line, and they named him Obed, the Ruth and Boaz's son. He was the father of Jesse the father of David, who is the great king who unites their people. I know it's an interesting story. Now, a couple of ways for us to pull this apart. Some say the story is here because it gives you backstory to King David. Uh, these were King David's relatives. Uh, okay, so some say the whole point of the book is just to give you a little backstory because then you move into Samuel, the book of Samuel and the emergence of King David who unites all the people. And then Jesus is called a son of David. So then you have this giant arc of sort of an idealized state of peace and harmony. Uh, but let's back up because that's one explanation. There's also a couple, a couple of others because in the Gospel of Matthew... 
which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life, the writer gives a genealogy of Jesus, and the writer mentions three women, which were not generally mentioned in first century Jewish genealogies. But the writer mentions that Ruth was the essentially great-great-grandmother of King David. But the writer also mentions uh, a woman named Rahab, who was in uh, an earlier book, she was a prostitute. And the genealogy in Matthew also mentions a woman named Tamar. And Tamar uh, dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law because when her husband died, she her father-in-law wouldn't find her a new husband. So she dressed up in disguise, seduced her father-in-law so that she could get pregnant and carry on the family line. <laughs> so when the gospel writer, Matthew, is telling us about where Jesus comes from, he breaks with social convention and says, Jesus comes from this father who's the father who's the father of the father, but also that's the person related to Ruth, and oh, that's the person related to Tamar, and oh, that's the person related to Rahab, and oh, that's the person related uh, to David's wife, who had been Uriah's wife, known as uh, Bathsheba. So, why is this? Why do these writers point out these women? Well, in each case, these are women, strong women, who in a culture that did not respect them to a certain degree, in a culture in which they had very few rights. These are strong women who acted in risky, dangerous ways to make sure that the right thing got done. Isn't that fascinating? Because that's generally not how we see uh, history, uh, especially when people talk, specifically Bible history. Generally, the narrative is Women are sort of side notes, and in many cases, they are. But what's so fascinating to me about the book of Ruth and about Matthew's reference to these women, um, by the way, some scholars call these breakouts. A breakout is when there is a dominant social order. These people on top, these people on bottom, these people with all the power, these people with no power, these people who control things, these people who have new, no rights, uh, There is sort of the dominant consciousness, but then there are those stories and people who are the exceptions. They're not just the exception, but they're actually a more advanced, a more enlightened, a more, uh, what would you say, progressive, a more evolved practice of some sort. And what they are is they're like a foreshadow. They're like a picture of where things are headed. So throughout history, you can find these spots where it's like, okay, that's how things work. Oh, wait, there's something that doesn't fit the pattern. And then what you see later is they were actually ahead of things, and then things gradually caught up. So when people right now have questions about where are we headed? Are things getting worse? 
by the way, you would not believe how many places when I do these Q and A's, that's one of the questions that comes up in any city uh, is people, are things getting worse or are things getting better? Why can't things evolve faster? Uh, when it, think about violence, the climate, um, think about education, think about all of the things um, in our midst that we have this sense like, why can't things speed up and get better faster? Uh, this is one of the beauties of a sacred text of studying history, as you see, uh, it's a long, slow march, and it takes a while, but there are these breakout moments that aren't to be disparaged, like, why can't everything be like that? Wait, 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 you can read it another way, which is, oh, if that's possible, uh, could that happen on a larger scale? Like, if that candidate isn't taking corporate money, you can say, I wish more candidates would not take corporate money, or you, we, we all wish that. You can say, oh, how come only one person's doing it? Or you can read it differently, which is, hey, this one person's doing it, this second person is doing it, wait, there's a third person. So you can read it as despair, how come only a few people are doing it in this new, better, highly evolved, connected way? Or you can read it as hope. Wow, if only, if these three are doing it, uh, is there a fourth? Is there a fifth? How do we not know what we're seeing is a breakout, which is where everything is headed at some point. And you see this arc across the Bible of these moments uh, when these things happen in real places in real time. These people reflect the worlds they're living in, and yet within it, you see these little moments when the thing moves forward, and then the thing moves forward, and then the thing moves a little more forward. And of course, obviously, over the course of history, sometimes it's two steps forward, three steps back, <laughs> one step forward, a half step back. It's a long, slow climb in a particular direction. Yeah. Oh, there's so much more there, but I haven't even gotten to the thing that I think is the most interesting thing here. Uh, there's a line... And obviously, I mean, you can read the story and you'll see all these things I haven't seen um, because this story, you can just go round and round and round. But uh, there's a thing that happens. It's the first line of the first chapter that it's the thing that moves me uh, because really it's, this is in some ways an ordinary story. It's people love, they lose there are forces larger than them at work that they're sort of at the mercy of, larger economic, agricultural forces that mean this family have to move. So the gut-wrenching feeling they have to leave home because they're hungry. Um, they're foreigners. They're in a place where they aren't at home. Uh, there's new love. Then there's the shock of death. Then there's the anger it's a very human story. Then there's the return for Naomi, but she returns a different person. Don't call me delightful or pleasure. Call me bitter. There's the terror for Ruth of I'm bound to this woman, Naomi, but also I'm headed back into a very precarious situation. I mean, this story has all these human elements. And then it's very ordinary. It's like very ordinary chesed. This guy named Boaz has a field. There's this striking woman who's got a reputation for being kind and resilient and brave. She's been working in his field. 
he tilts things her way. <laughs> yeah, he makes sure she has plenty. And then she takes this huge risk because love is always risky. It may be reciprocated, it may, it may not. Middle of the night, she climbs under the blanket. Who knows what goes on? But it's a gesture to him of, uh, take me, I'm yours. Um, there's great risk there that he'll say, get out of my bed, get out of my blanket, get out of my threshing floor. How dare you? And instead he says, oh man, you could have gone after a younger man, uh, but you chose me. All right. And then you have like a, like a full-on love story. And then there's a baby. So it's all this. But then notice chapter one, verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, uh, that's a reference to the book of Judges. And that's a reference to a whole violent cycle of these people are living in this land. They get conquered by one of the neighbors. At one point, they got conquered by Moab, who oppressed them for a while, King Eglon. You know about King Eglon. Uh, he uh, oppresses the people, and then a deliverer would rise up when the people cried out. One of these judges who would go to battle against the oppressor, drive them out, and then the land would have some peace, and one of these liberators would rule. And then they would die or pass on, and then another nation would invade them. And when that nation invaded them, it would be awful. There would be, uh, supplies would be cut off. It's obviously connected with famine. Um, so this is a time of massive political upheaval. Uh, you don't know whether the person in charge will be good, kind, fair, just, or whether the people in charge will be overbearing, ruthless, violent, only out to conquer you and accumulate whatever wealth and power they can accumulate. So this is an incredibly volatile time when the very fabric of the culture is being threatened. It's an extremely volatile time when what these people knew to be like the center of their life together was constantly under attack. So truth, generosity, uh, respect, civility. There's even a line from the judges, in those days, everyone did as he or she saw fit. So people, uh, there were periods in this cycle when everybody just looked out for themselves. It was just every person for themselves. There was a certain carnivorous sort of uh, feeling in the air of like, take what you can get now because you have no idea what's coming next. So great upheaval, Great tumult, great turbulence, great you don't know what's coming next. A lot of the things that you relied on have been gone. A lot of the stable, foundational, functional elements of culture have been ripped apart. <laughs> By the way, are you yet going, hey, wait, that sounds familiar a bit. And it is in that time, under that umbrella, 
in the time of the judges, which means in the time of this cycle of peace and violence, of rebellion and upheaval, of oppression and then resistance, in that time, let me tell you a story about just an ordinary family. Now, why is this interesting? Well, the Bible as a whole is written by a minority group of people who have been conquered by one military superpower after another. So to begin with, what is the Bible? It's a collection of poems, letters, and stories written by a group of people who are a small minority, and they've been conquered time and time and time again by forces way larger than they are. And so in some ways, Ruth is, one way you can read it is, here is how you keep your dignity and honor. Here is how you hold on to your humanity when you are in the midst of trying, difficult, turbulent, frightening times that could easily overwhelm you and cause you to lose a sense of peace, a sense of stability, even a sense of joy. Here's how to remain fierce and resilient and strong when there are forces so much larger and more powerful than you at work. And then what you get is a story about chesed, about love, about grace, about generosity. Here's a man named Boaz. He's got a field. He's got plenty. And what is he doing with his abundance? He's making sure that everybody who's hungry, who doesn't have anything, has what they need. He also apparently fancies Ruth. So these are people getting on with their lives, caring for each other. And even how the writer talks about how everybody greets Naomi when she comes back, how they all gather as witnesses to the wedding, how there's a, a legal ceremony for Boaz to say, there's a kinsman closer to Ruth and Naomi than me, but he doesn't want, uh, he's, he can't take care of this, so I'm stepping in here to do the right thing. In some ways, you could say it, it's a story. How does the world change? How does history hinge? There are these larger political regimes that come and go. Uh, there are these people who grab the reins, who tweet away, who have their power for a moment. There are these empires that come and go. But what you do is you practice chesed in the details of your life. That's how you do it is you ask, what today can I do to care for the vulnerable? What today can I do? And uh, one of the words for God in the story is El Shaddai, um, which is a word used about uh, a number of gods in the ancient world, but it's used here. Naomi uses it to, it's used to describe Naomi's God. And El Shaddai, the etymology is a little bit uh, questionable, but it seems to have something to do with power, like El Shaddai being the powerful one. Uh, and what Naomi talks about essentially when she says bitter is she says the powerful one has rendered me disempowered. But then what you see Naomi doing when she says, Ruth, go out into the field, that's going to go well for you. 
go into that guy. Okay, good. Okay, now go risk it all. Show him that you want him to marry you. Uh, in some ways, what it's a story of empowerment. It's a story when everything's been taken from you, when it appears as though you have no power. You always have some power. You can always do something. You can always make a move in some direction. In some ways, the story is Naomi going from disempowered to empowerment and then handing that on to Ruth. I know. See how interesting all this suddenly gets? I wonder if in some ways the storyteller is going, in the time of the judges, and it's almost like one of those things where everybody would have known what of that meant, in a time of massive upheaval, when no one knew what's coming next. Let me tell you a story about some people who practiced a divine grace and generosity and love with each other, and who that's actually how history turns. That's actually how the thing works. They did not allow the stress and anxiety of those times keep them from being faithful and true in how they lived with one another. And then the storyteller at the end goes, oh, and by the way, this particular average normal people sort of doing this, this little love story, which you've heard a hundred times, oh yeah, that turned out to be uh, where the great King David comes from. Nice little twist there at the end. Yeah, yeah. In some ways then Ruth becomes something for you and I. Uh, you and me and Ruth now, some ways, the ordinariness, uh, the ordinariness of the book of Ruth for you and I becomes uh, like a seriously inspiring. Like who's in power? Where is it headed next? Who doesn't get it? Who's doing, okay, what's the next right thing in front of me? How can I practice chesed? How can I live in a different sort of way? Uh, yeah, yeah, those become the questions. Those become the questions. Because I can do that. There's so much uh, that goes on that I don't have power and control over. But I can do this. I could do that. I could do that. Yeah, do you have any disempowerment lurking within you because of the times you're living in? And perhaps that's the you and me and Ruth. That's the note, the resonating note for each of us is, oh, no, no, you always have power. There's always something you can do. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you can always practice chesed. Yeah, anybody can do that. <laughs> oh, my word. There is a bit on the book of Ruth, an ancient, Interesting four-chapter story written, edited thousands of years ago somehow does something to us here and now. What a mystery that all is. May grace and peace be with you, my friends.